Hello and welcome to a new episode in New Books in Islamic Studies. I'm your host, Sher Ali Tari. For each new episode, we choose an important new book in the field of Islamic studies and we chat with its author. There are few concepts commonly associated with Islam and Muslims today that evoke more anxiety, phobia and paranoia than the veil, commonly translated as the hijab. Seen by many as the most quintessential symbol of the alleged Muslim oppression of women, the veil has for some time represented a subject of tremendous rage, debate, polemics and fantastical stereotypes. But what is the veil? What is its history? Is the veil primarily an Islamic concept and object? What are some of the problems associated with reducing the veil to religion? What is the genealogy of sensationalized representations of the veil in Western popular discourse and media? These are among the questions addressed by Sahar Amr, Professor of Arabic and Islamic Studies at Sydney University in Australia in her brilliant new book, What is Veiling? published by the University of North Carolina Press in 2014. Remarkably nuanced and thoughtful, this timely book takes readers on a riveting intellectual journey that brings into focus the complexities of the veil as a discursive, political and material object. Amr moves seamlessly between multiple texts and contexts while showing the diversity of ways in which Muslims and non-Muslims have approached, contested, embraced or resisted the veil in different historical conjunctures. Just as there is no one Islamic position on the veil, there is no one or predetermined meaning that the veil or veiling carries, Amr argues. Puncturing essentialist and stereotypical narratives about the veil, Amr convincingly argues that while seemingly a purely sartorial object, the discourse on the veil is in fact invested in and embroidered by a multiplicity of normative commitments, hopes, fears and anxieties, irreducible to any singular history, text, religion or motivation. Beautifully written and exhaustively researched, this book is a must-read for novices and experts alike. A helpful summary of the argument after each chapter should prove particularly useful in the undergraduate classroom. In our conversation, we talked about the history of the veil, discussions on the veil in major normative Muslim textual traditions, progressive Muslim reinterpretations of the veil in Islam, the veil and Orientalism, competing imaginaries of the veil in Europe and the US today, Islamic fashion, and resistance to conservative understandings of the veil in contemporary art and poetry. Here now is my conversation with Professor Sahar Amr. Hello, Sahar. How are you doing? Hi, how are you, Sharali? Very good. Thank you so much for your time, Sahar. As I was uh, saying to you uh, before we went live, uh, it was such a pleasure reading your book. Uh, it is really, uh, uh, one really goes through an arcade of different texts and contexts and uh, historical conditions, material conditions, and just a number of actors uh, and and the complexity with which you have dealt with this uh, very timely and difficult question of uh, veiling and, and the veil is, is really remarkable. So thank you so much for this intellectual opportunity to engage with you uh, as a reader and now as part of this conversation. Thank you. Thank you very much. So we have a tradition in New Books in Islamic Studies that our first question is always biographical. Uh, and... I can uh, phrase uh, this question as a two-part question. One would be, uh, how did you first become interested in, or how? what is the story behind uh, your becoming interested in and uh, entering the field of uh, Islamic studies and the study of Muslim societies? And then the second part of the question would be, how did you come to write this particular book? 
Um, well, the, the, to answer the first question, I, um, I was, have always been interested in the study of Islam and Muslim societies, um, per, perhaps um, for the simple reason that I myself am Egyptian, I'm Muslim, I grew up, uh, I was born and I grew up in Egypt, um, and so I have a very personal um, relationship to Islam and to Muslim societies. Um, I grew up in France and I grew up in the United States, and while I was especially in the United States, I noticed how much misunderstandings and stereotypes are surrounding Muslims. And I always felt very personally um, involved and, um, and touched by these debates. And I've always wanted to understand more so that I can help others better understand um, Islam and Muslims. So this is really how I became interested um, in, in this topic. About veiling in particular, I have a personal interest in it because I myself was veiled for about um, 10 months of my life when I was in my early 20s and when I was in college at Bryn Mawr. And, um, and, and, it was, and then I, when I decided to take off my veil, I did it for very specific reasons. Um, and that it, it, it led me to really want to understand more about Islam and why Muslim women veil. And then it has become just a very important uh, part of my scholarly um, efforts over the last uh, 15 years. I've been teaching classes on veiling and I've been doing a lot of outreach activities in the U.S. and now in Sydney um, on veiling practices and Muslim societies. And so when um, UNC Press approached me to write this book, I felt I was quite ready and I was very excited about that opportunity. Terrific. Uh, thank you so much. So let me begin with a broad question uh, to familiarize readers with the objectives of this book. Uh, could you say what are the major conceptual goals and objectives of this book? What are you trying to do in this book? Um, my main goal is to um, let readers, both Muslims and non-Muslims, these are really uh, my target audience, have a deeper and more complex and more nuanced understanding of veiling practices. Um, I want to give them um, some background in the variety of discourses and, um, and dimensions that always play a role in any woman's decision to adopt veiling. I wanted to talk about the Quran, but I also wanted to talk about many other facets of veiling that oftentimes people don't think about, such as uh, the political discourse, the uh, the, the social um, the, uh, you know aspect of veiling, the fashion, the poetry, the literature about veiling. So I just wanted to show how multi-layered this is in order to um, uh, dispel the myth that Islam is the one that invented veiling or that the Quran requires veiling in clear terms. Um, or that women who are veiled are oppressed and submissive, or that there is one correct way of veiling. Um, and so all of these um, myths uh, were are really what I was trying to, to challenge throughout writing this book. So before we discuss the question of what is veiling, which is the title of this book, uh, let us discuss a bit the question of what is the veil and what is the history of the veil? Can you see a bit about the history of the veil and different ways in which we might translate the veil, the different uh, uh, ways in which we might approach the question of what the veil is? Um, the most important thing that I think that we need to remember when thinking about veiling is that Islam did not invent the veil. And in fact, this is the first sentence of my book. 
um, because I think it's really important in today's society um, when we think about veiling and when I ask my students what what veiling means to them, they immediately think about Muslim women. And um, veiling existed since uh, 12,000 uh, BC and it was a social injunction to uh, distinguish aristocratic and married women from uh, lower class prostitutes and unmarried women. So veiling has had in historically, in historical terms, a social meaning before it even acquired a religious meaning. And so this is one important element. The other thing is that, of course, we need to remember that um, Islam came into a world regions where well before it, Jews and Christian, um, Jewish and Christian women were already wearing the veil. In fact, all Mediterranean cultures um, had women who covered their hair. So I think it's really important to see the veiling in Islam in this kind of larger historical and social and regional context and not just simply think that Islam just suddenly invented a way of dressing that just nobody had ever heard of. In the first chapter of your book, you show through a very detailed and nuanced analysis and you make the case very convincingly that there is no one position in Islam on the question of veiling. There is no such thing as the Islamic position on veiling. Could you explain a bit how and in what ways the subject of veiling is taken up and discussed in major Muslim normative traditions and major Muslim normative texts? Yes, um, I think that this is a, a, a very important uh, way, I think, for me to start the book, because a lot of Muslims and a lot of non-Muslims actually believe that the Quran, um, so the major text of Islam, has is requiring veiling in clear, explicit, and in no uncertain terms. And that is actually very um, questionable uh, belief. Um, and so my first chapter is is precisely to go through all of the major surahs in the Quran that most Muslims um, um, cite in order to justify their understanding and their practice that veiling is actually part of, um, of, of Islam. And um, through my research and through other scholars' research, um, it's very clear that the Quran, um, when, it, when it speaks about Failing, um, it actually does not use the term hijab, which is today the, the, the most common equivalent to the term failing in English, even though that's really not a, a very accurate um, translation, but that's what is used today. Um, so the, the word hijab is actually very rarely used in the Quran to address women at all. And when it is speaking about women, it's speaking more about the, the, the screen that is, that serves to distinguish or to protect the privacy of the Prophet's wives from men. And even in that verse in Quran 3353, the responsibility of, um, of maintaining this hijab, this, this privacy of the Prophet's wife, is actually put on men and not on women. So this is quite interesting because, of course, it reverses our belief or our, you know, the tradition that Muslim women are the ones who are responsible for maintaining uh, hijab. Um, and then in other uh, verses in the Quran uh, that speaks about women's clothing, the word hijab is not used. And in fact, it's very, um, it, it's talking more in, in much more general terms about um, the need to um, be modest, um, to cover 
um, the women's ornament um, to draw the scarves over the necklines and um, to cover the woman's beauty. And so this, of course, is not so clear what it, what is the woman's ornament, what is the woman's beauty, um, and who gets to decide whether a woman is beautiful and needs to cover herself or not. And so the Quran is much more open-ended than people assume that it is. And it's only exegetical interpretation of the Quran that were developed several centuries after the Quran in, came into being. So um, Al-Tabari, for example, Al-Razi or Ibn al-Jawzi, um, so in the 10th through the 13th century, that layers of interpretations um, have been superimposed on the Quran that have become more and more restrictive, interpreting the very open-ended verses of the Quran in a very specific way, saying that the woman's body is the ornament that needs to be covered, and the only disagreements that exegetical um, writers um, uh, had was whether the woman's face and hands had to be covered or not. In the next chapter of your book, you discuss uh, progressive Muslims and their attempts at rethinking the question of veiling in Islam. Uh, so who are progressive Muslims and what are some of the discursive and hermeneutical strategies through which they have tried and sought to rethink uh, veiling and the question of veiling uh, in Islam? Progressive Muslims are uh, Muslims throughout the world in both Muslim majority and Muslim minority societies who are trying to re-engage in a much more personal and spiritual way with the texts of the Quran and with the history of Islam um, in order to, um, uh, with, with the main goal of upholding and reconnecting with the spirit of equality and, um, and, um, and diversity that exists in the message of Islam. And so for them, um, it's really important to reread the Quran and to peel away the layers of exegetical meanings that have su been superimposed on the holy texts um, over the centuries and reinterpret those texts in a new more um, equitable and more spiritual way. So the, the progressive Muslims are basically rereading the Quran, they are rereading the Hadith, they are rereading um, the, the, the development of jurisprudence um, and try to um, and, and try to reinterpret or research the terms uh, that are used in the Quran to speak about women's dress. So, for example, the jilbab or the khimar or the aura. Uh, what are all of these terms mean? And specifically, what did they mean in the 7th century? Um, and so by, re, by exploring this meaning, by digging back into Islamic history, by exploring the role that Muslim women have played um, in the early days of Islam and throughout Islamic history, those progressive Muslims are able to give us a completely new way of reading the Quran, of reading Hadith, of reading jurisprudence, and also, of course, of understanding veiling practices. You convincingly and brilliantly show in this book that just as veiling cannot be reduced to the Quran, it can also not be reduced as a solely religious practice, which seems to be one of the major misconceptions or stereotypes about veiling. Um, so if we were to think about the practice of veiling, for instance, in Muslim-majority contexts, 
what are some of the major political, legal and cultural factors that we should be attentive to in order to develop a more nuanced, a, a more multi-layered understanding of veiling uh, as a practice and, and the veil? I think that it's really important to look at veiling historically um, and contextually. And so if one um, looks at veiling even just throughout the 20th century, so not even going any further than that, um, in the 20th century, in most Muslim-majority societies, women had stopped wearing the veil. And so when you look, for example, in Turkey, uh, Turkey, starting with Ataturk in the 1920s, um, had a very um, important movement to westernize and Europeanize the society in order to advance Turkish uh, culture. So Ataturk had a number of reforms, um, most notably what is known as the Hat Law. And of course, he was more interested in men than in women. And so he wanted men to change their way of dressing in order to imitate European clothing. And so therefore, um, no longer wear the fez, the traditional hat, uh, but wear uh, more European or American style hats. Um, but he also encouraged, and then later there was a particular law that developed in Turkey, encouraged also Turkish women to uh, behave and to dress and to act in ways um, very more similar to European women. And so um, veiling became very discouraged in, in the 1980s in Turkey. Um, a lot of um, t- Turkish women were no longer allowed to um, to go to the university, for example, if they were veiled. They could no longer have government jobs if they were veiled. And, um, and it's only really in the last year um, or two that um, there has been many changes in Turkish uh, laws um, that allow veiled Turkish women to attend university, for example, or to have government jobs. So I think that, therefore, we see that really it's not um, it's not uh, Islam or it's not religion that determines whether a woman is veiling or not. In this particular case, and there are many cases we can talk about Iran, we can talk about uh, Indonesia. I mean, there are many different uh, examples that one could give um, that show that it's actually politics that here determine primarily whether a woman um, is going to be allowed to veil or not to veil. Now, one of the things that I really liked about this book was that you clearly showed that the stereotypes and the sensationalized narratives about the veil that we find uh, in our midst today, they have histories, that there are genealogies of these present-day representations of the veil. Uh, So what are some of these varied and at times diverging fantasies about the veil that you talk about uh, and about Muslim women's bodies found in 19th and early 20th century European popular discourses or Orientalist discourses. And what are the sorts of media that were being employed and used to disseminate and uh, to project these sorts of fantasies about the veil and about uh, the female Muslim body? Um, it's very interesting how before 9-11, um, when I asked my students what came to mind when they thought about veiling, they didn't give the image that now is prevalent, which is the woman is oppressed or somebody's forcing her to veil or something like that. The images that came to mind for them was more of Aladdin, um, Jasmine. Um, so the idea of this very Orientalist uh, perspective of erotic, uh, sexually available um, Muslim women. And these ideas 
ideas developed really from the middle of the 18th century and throughout the 19th and early 20th century, in which we have an entire discourse um, produced by European politicians, diplomats, um, artists, uh, novelists, travel writers, uh, photographers, I mean, you name it, everybody um, in terms of high culture and then quickly popular culture like postcards, for example, or advertisement, um, quickly adopted that very same perspective of the Muslim women as an erotic um, uh, creature um, lounging in harems full of women, awaiting either um, uh, some sexual meeting with a white man or awaiting also their sec- their liberation uh, 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 by, uh, by brown men, um, to use a very famous um, phrase here. Um, and so, and this whole discourse of Orientalism of the sexually, um, uh, the sexually available woman and also the oppressed woman who is held up in a harem and by a very nasty husband or father, um, is really the parallel uh, that um, the, the, the parallel of the military incursions that was taking place at the same time. In other words, European colonizers um, were seeking a cultural way of justifying their military incursions by showing that they're actually seeking to civilize um, those Muslim societies and liberate those women from their oppression. And of course, in the same time, having a lot of sexual possibilities uh, with them. And so the, 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 the veiling that we see today as an oppression um, of women, actually for many Muslims, um, evokes also that very big history of imperialism that is still very much alive in, um, in, in, in Muslim societies today. So in the next two chapters of your book, uh, you shift the geographic focus a bit uh, from uh, Muslim-majority contexts to discussing uh, discourses and representations of the veil uh, in Western Europe uh, and in the U.S. in the contemporary moment. And I was wondering if we could perhaps uh, engage in a discussion which is comparative in nature, comparing you know Western Europe and the U.S. today. Uh, so what, Sahar, would you say are some of the major similarities and differences in how the veil is viewed in Europe and the U.S. today and in how Muslim women in these two contexts have had to contend with or negotiate the dominant political and popular discourses on the whale uh, that they see and find uh, in their midst? Um, Well, I think that perhaps the main similarity between uh, Western Europe and and the U.S. is um, the fact that Muslim women are always um, at the forefront of any discourse about um, Islam and about veiling, and they are oftentimes bearing the brunt of any uh, policies that are made um, in the name of um, of stopping um, the global war on terror or on in the name of national security. So I would say that it's basically they become the victim of all of these political discourses in both um, in both regions of the world. Um, now, the, the history of, um, of the politics um, towards veiling in both 
societies are actually quite different. Um, in Europe and in France in particular, and I use France as a case study of what happens in Europe because it seems to always be the leader in any types of laws towards Muslim uh, immigrants because, uh, or Muslim, they're not immigrants, they're actually citizens um, of those European nations, but they're always spoken about as if they were immigrants. And so France really seems to be the leader in any policies that is made, and whenever there is a law in France that happens, um, then it seems to be adopted then very quickly by other societies. Um, in, I think in France, the one thing that one needs to really understand is that their notion of the republic is very different from any notion in um, in the U.S. And so for, for, for France to be a citizen means to shed all differences and all ethnic, religious, linguistic, and cultural differences in order to become a neutral citizen. And so the the... In, in, in France, they are very much against the notion of multiculturalism because everybody needs to be made French. So if you decide to wear the veil, then you're going to look different. And so for France, by looking different, you are claiming a special status, which for them defeats the whole purpose of the republic and of being a citizen. And so the, 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 the notion of laïcité or secularism, that's how it's translated, even though it's not exactly the same thing. But that notion of um, secularism in France just means um, the rejection of any sort of multiculturalism, the, any sort of affirmative action. Um, and so France adopted a law in 2004 that bans um, girls from wearing hijab in public schools. And then in 2010, France became the second country after Belgium to ban the full body um, burqa and niqab from all public spaces. And so public spaces means from the streets, from gardens, from the shopping malls, from, of course, government buildings, in other words, from anywhere. And so, and this was made in France in the name again at the beginning of upholding um, secularism, so the French notion of the republic. But then the discourse starting in the 2004-2005 became a, a discourse of um, uh, liberating uh, Muslim women, so a feminist discourse. And it's through that feminist discourse that really France was able to get more popular support for the policies that were made. And of course, those policies are very um uh, you know, uh, I think disappointing because they're now also being adopted by the majority of European societies. So that's the situation in Europe. Um, in the United States, um, of course, the notion of multiculturalism is really very important and fundamental to American, um, the American constitution and American history. So there is no law that um, is made against wearing um, hijab or niqab, and I don't think there could be a law really that would pass there, at least I hope not. Um, but, but despite the fact that there is no laws, there is still a lot of discrimination um, against women and girls who are wearing um, the hijab. And we see those discrimination particularly in uh, the work Place, for example, a lot of women um, are not able to get jobs um, 
because they wear hijab. Um, and a lot of girls, for example, are not able to participate in sports, um, in organized sports from their schools because they wear hijab. Um, there's a lot of uh, discrimination in the pool, for example, um, because of um, either the way the girl themselves dress or because of the mother who is accompanying the children is dressed. So we see those kind of discrimination in much different type of location. There is no general law about it, but it seems to be pervasive throughout American societies. Um, those other types of discrimination that are become particularly vehement um, as soon as there is an international crisis that then a lot of people take as justifying further discrimination against um, Muslim women. Um, the only place where I think that there is a more um, a, a more pol political um, discrimination against women in the U.S. Um, could be seen in the place, for example, of getting a driver's license. So interestingly, before 2011, there were some states um, in the U.S. that allowed a woman to have a driver's license without a picture affixed to it. And of course, this all changed after 9-11, um, in which, you know, women have to have a picture and um, they do not allow a woman wearing a face uh, veil to, to have that picture on her driver's license. Um, so there, there is still, you know, um, still discrimination, but it doesn't seem to have the kind of political um, and mediatic attention that all of these discussions have in Europe. One of the topics that you discuss extensively in your book is uh, that of Muslim feminist uh, understandings and approaches towards uh, veiling in Islam. And you show something very curious in this chapter and something very fascinating that Muslim feminist expressions in relation to veiling could either represent a rejection of veiling or an embrace of veiling. It can go uh, both ways in interesting ways. Uh, so, how have Muslim feminist understandings and approaches towards veiling transformed uh, over the last hundred years? And how can embracing or rejecting the veil both represent particular expressions of feminism? Um, I think veiling and feminism is a really important topic to consider because for a lot of people, um, these two uh, words happening in the same sentence are assumed to be an oxymoron. Um, how could you be veiled and covered and also claim to be a feminist? And I think that um, this kind of idea perhaps stems from first world, um, the first wave feminism um, in, the, in Europe and in the U.S., which um, highlighted the fact that the more clothing you wear, the more oppressed you are, and the less clothing you wear, you're more liberated you are. And this really just doesn't work at all in the context of uh, Muslim societies and of feminism and veiling. Um, there has always been two lines of argument um, in feminism in Muslim societies in relation to women's clothing um, throughout the 20th century. Uh, and both of them existed from the beginning of the 20th century, but they had different weights and different emphasis. Um, so in the early 20th century, the loudest voice that one could hear is the voice of um, uh, Egyptian feminism, Qasim Amin, who was actually a man, and Hoda Sharawi, um, a woman, um, and Huda Sharawi's uh, 1923 very famous 
uh, appearance in uh, Egypt upon her return from uh, a big international conference on women in Italy um, when she appeared without um, her veil. And of course, without the veil at that time just meant without her face veil. Um, she kept her head covered uh, for another several years before that being shed. And in that discourse of Qasem Amin and uh, Huda Sharawi, um, lifting the veil, so uncovering um, the face, was a huge, huge step in, um, in, in demanding um, uh, the liberation of women and their work side by side with men. Um, that type of feminism, so uncovering um, because as a means to achieving feminism, uh, resembled and recalled a lot of the colonial discourse of the time, which also sought to liberate Muslim women by uncovering them. And so a lot of people have always said Huda um, Sha'arawi is actually repeating just the colonial perspective. And in a way, it's true, but we also have to remember that Huda Sha'arawi was a very staunch anti-colonialist. She was also fighting against British occupation of Egypt. So it was very possible that some of her ideas resembled the colonial perspective, but she wasn't herself a colonial, a colonialist. So there was like this voice, so uncovering liberation. Um, but then at the same time, and a voice by Malik Hifni Nasif, uh, who was also another feminist from the 1920s, um, she actually felt that it was uh, not a good idea to shed the veil, and for her it was because that's precisely also what the you know British wanted. Um, but it was important to keep uh, women veiled because for her the main problem was not the veil, but the main problem was women's education, and so she wanted to emphasize women's education and then let them choose whether they want to veil or not to veil. And so here, again, another voice of feminism that's saying that veiling is not an issue. What is more important is education and choice. And this voice is actually the voice that was very, uh, that was not heard very much in the early 20th century, but that since the 1980s across Muslim majority societies has become the main voice of uh, feminism, of Islamic feminism, which is, um, again, um, education, uh, work, socioeconomic independence, and then choosing whether or not to fail. In the last uh, section of your book, uh, you take up uh, the topic of how conservative or essentialist understandings of the veil are challenged and resisted through uh, non-textual or alternative media like fashion and poetry and art, and really, we can spend an entire interview on either of these chapters in many ways. We could have an entire interview on Islamic fashion, for example. That was such a fascinating chapter. But I was wondering if you could highlight some of the ways in which uh, conservative or essentialist interpretations of Islamic veiling uh, are being or have been resisted uh, through these media like fashion, poetry, and art. Um, yeah, it's very interesting how um, fashion, which has become like a multi-million dollar industry um, in the last perhaps 20 or 25 years, um, is, is, is really both maintaining um, Islamic practices and challenging um, Islamic uh, practices. Um, and that's because um, today it's not uncommon at all to see 
um, everywhere around the world, Muslim women dressed um, not just in the black abaya and the black scarf, which is the traditional way we think about veiling, but in the, a lot of col- uh, 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 vibrant colors and vibrant styles and that change with the seasons. Every time I go to Egypt or that I travel um, in, uh, in Muslim-majority societies, I'm always amazed by, by the new styles that the scarf is tied, um, by the new abaya styles, the embroidery, the precious stones um, that uh, a lot of Muslim women uh, like to adopt. Um, and so I think that fashion is, um, is, can provide a space in which women individualize, um, their own, um, clothing, just like a woman who is not veiled also individualizes her, 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 herself and, and shows her independence by the selection of clothing that she is making. So I think that there is there a big space for women to really explore and adapt and adopt whatever it is that they want to wear and assert their cosmopolitanism, their modernity, their agency in the world. Um, there's also a whole um, other discourse of poetry and art um, that seeks to also challenge conservative views of veiling and give another voice in which um, we can explore failing practices um, through other media. So in poetry, I really like the poems by uh, Mohjakah, for example, um, um, who, who, who talks um, about um, how um, failing is, um, is really uh, something that people have a lot of assumptions about. Um, but that actually uh, can be, um, but but they actually reveal women's independence and women's individuality, and that it's much more important to um, see the mind of women and to see their creativity and their personality and their intelligence instead of focusing on um, this very visible sign, but that um, doesn't have that uh, 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 doesn't tell us much about women themselves. And then I, I love art, um, um, and so to me, art was a natural space in which to look for alternative views of failing. And we have so many different um, artists today, both men and women, who, um, who who address the topic of veiling. And in fact, I could have probably written an entire book just on art and veiling. And I had to make a very small selection um, in my book. And um, and there are artists who, for example, um, um, try to show how women, like to let the viewer experience women's uh, experience, uh, let the viewer experience um, what goes on in in the mind of women who are veiled. Um, I'm thinking here of Halida Bougriet, who has done uh, a beautiful video called Les Illuminés, um, the uh, the enlightened one. And basically, she is um, she had put a camera inside the burqa of a woman. Uh, and is filming from inside the burqa what the the woman is seeing as she is walking through the metro station um, in Paris. And so, of course, here we see what the woman is seeing, and we also see how other people are looking at this woman, uh, whom they don't know is also filming their reaction. 
So here, very interesting to see a perspective from both sides. So the woman inside um, who seems to be oppressed because uh, the whole um, video is uh, showing the bars that uh, presumably cover her eyes. Um, and so we assume that she is very oppressed. Um, but then when we see how others are looking back at her and the fear that is in their eyes, their shock, the ignorance, uh, the stereotypes that um, to which she is subjected daily. Um, so we, we, we see what she is living um, through every day. Um, but in the end, we also realize that the person here who is actually um, in charge of the entire scene is the woman who is in Borka, not the people who are looking at her because we see everything through her eyes. So it's a very empowering video, even though it starts as though it was going to be a very uh, disempowering uh, type of artistic expression. So, Sahar, uh, in your opinion, what are the kinds of uh, spaces and uh, opportunities or possibilities for resistance that are opened up uh, by these alternative modes of expression like you know, fashion, poetry, and art uh, that may not be available through you know, somewhat more conventional uh, reinterpretations of religious texts, for example, canonical texts, the Quran, and so forth. Uh, how are these projects of reinterpretation uh, similar and different, and what kinds of uh, possibilities and spaces do you think these uh, uh, forms of expression open up for this project of rethinking uh, the question of veiling in Islam and so on? I think that um, the, the question of fashion, poetry, and art, for example, um, speaks to different people. I think that um, there are there's a big, uh, I'm hoping that my audience for this book is both scholarly, but also the general audience and, in, and, or, and students in, um, in classes. And for students, for example, when I teach my class on veiling, they connect a lot more quickly to the main issues uh, on veiling when we talk on fashion, poetry, and art. And that might be a generational thing, or that that's, these are issues that they are interested in, they like art, they like poetry, they like fashion. And so you can talk to them about it and through that allow them to better understand the more religious or political discourse about veiling. So I think that it's really also just important for people to realize that basically we do a disservice to the whole topic of Islam or Muslim women and veiling practices if we only limit the discussion to politics and, um, and religion. I mean, these are important, but there are many other things that Muslim women um, um, that is that are part of the experience of Muslim women that we must take into account if we are really going to understand veiling from their perspective and hear their voices. Well, as we're approaching uh, the end of our time uh, here, Sahar, I was wondering if you could share with our listeners uh, what are the kinds of things you're working on these days and what are some of the things that we can uh, anticipate and expect to uh, read from you and learn from your work in the coming uh, months and years, I guess? Yes. Um, well, I'm, I'm, right now I'm actually working um, on questions of gender and sexuality in uh, Muslim uh, societies and particularly looking at LGBTIQ uh, communities um, in contemporary Arab societies. And I'm also exploring how um, Islam and homosexuality are negotiated in these communities, particularly when we are, um, when it is the case of veiled Muslim women who are also dealing with alternative sexual experiences. 
So um, this is a, a, another extremely sensitive topic. Um, it's a bit difficult to explore um, because we ha I have to maintain the privacy of the people that I'm working with. Um, but I think this is another way one can change some of the conservative reading of Islam and also some of the stereotype that both Muslims and non-Muslims have about, um, about Muslim communities. What is Veiling by Sahar Amar, published by the University of North Carolina Press in 2014. Uh, thank you so much, Sahar, uh, for your time. It was such a pleasure to read your book and a delight to uh, talk to you about it uh, today. Uh, so thank you so much uh, for this book, for this wonderful and outstanding book, and for your time today and for being a part of uh, New Books in Islamic Studies. Thank you, Sharad. So this was my conversation with Professor Sahar Amar about her new book, What is Wailing? Thank you so much for listening. Please join us next time for another episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. Until then, this is your host, Sher Ali Tareen, signing off. Take care and stay well. Thank you.